welcome back to the Dr. Body Mind Soul podcast. My name is Dr. Jude, and this is a podcast which explores how we can integrate modern medicine and alternative therapies to help you get the holistic health care that you deserve. I will be speaking to healers and seekers, researchers and authors who will share their experiences and the evidence to help guide us all to holistic health. Let's do this. Dr. Deepak Ravindran is one of the UK's leading pain specialists. He is one of the few medical consultants who possesses triple certification in lifestyle medicine, musculoskeletal medicine, and pain medicine, using all of this knowledge together to give his patients a truly integrative and holistic approach. He is the author of the book, The Pain-Free Mindset, which outlines seven steps to taking control and overcoming chronic pain, which I am certainly excited to be discussing with him today. Welcome, Dr. Ravindran. Thank you, Jude, so much for inviting me onto your podcast. I must say I enjoy. I've listened to a few of the episodes and you've got some really good lineup of guests. So I'm really pleased to be now part of that lineup. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I really wanted to invite you onto the podcast today because chronic pain is such a complex and tricky problem for so many of the patients I see in A&E. And yet I think that doctors on the front line like myself and GPs and primary care can feel quite helpless with the tools that they have available to them, which I'm sure many people are familiar with, um, which leaves many people on strong pain medications with multiple side effects um, or referred to surgery, which does, doesn't always help. Um, which leaves us referring them to pain clinics, which are very inaccessible. So people can be waiting for months and sometimes years to see a specialist in this field. And I'm really interested in knowing what I can suggest to these patients so that they can give themselves the best chance of helping them help themselves while they're waiting for such specialist management. Uh, I think a great start and a great question, Jude. In fact, there's so much to unpack in there because fundamentally you highlight a very major challenge that probably every uh, service, primary or secondary care service faces, not just I think in the UK, but this is a theme that I'm now aware is an issue in most European countries and definitely in the US and Latin America as well. I suspect it probably is a global issue of how we are to manage chronic pain. Because if you take it in sheer numbers itself, uh, most of the countries where this data has come, you've got a 20% prevalence of chronic pain in the population. So if you are taking a global view, we are talking about roughly one and a half to two billion people roughly struggling with chronic pain. Um, that is a huge proportion of the population that is having an issue that in theory is lasting more than three months. And that's the artificial distinction we make between acute and chronic pain. And the biggest problem I think we have is the way our systems are all set up are in trying to treat pain as a symptom of something that's going wrong therefore it needs a medical model which means 
you have to investigate where the pain is coming from, which means you've already decided that the pain is coming from a structure in the body, and therefore it needs investigations and tests and frequent scans. And that, I think, is really the challenge we are doing because the last 10 to 20 years of the neuroscience of how our brain, our nervous system, our immune system are all wired and working together in a network fashion is teaching us that that fundamental premise that pain always comes from a structure is probably a flawed construct to start with. And I think that if we can, first of all, as a society, as a system, as a medical uh, primary or secondary care, accept that actually not every pain needs to come from a structure and that there can be a more holistic and integrated way to understand pain, then automatically our choices on what we can do to help our patients immediately improve. Right now, as you highlighted, because we think it comes from a structure, we've set up 10-minute primary care consultations, 15 to 20-minute appointments, or at the most 25-minute appointments in secondary care, because everything is about an examination, an investigation, and an intervention, or a set of interventions in order to find uh, the right cause or the right structure where it's coming from. And in the meanwhile, just keep dishing out medications until the cause is found. And if the medications don't work, go for a surgery. That's the mantra under which we've operated. And that, I think, is the challenge. I think the last 10, 20 years, as I said, if that knowledge of what I have found out a lot of my colleagues in this field are talking about, if that were to be more commonly accepted and more spread, we will be able to have a better conversation. Because right now, we sort of still think, okay, if the patients are told what to do, they will do it, almost forgetting that we as healthcare professionals also have a lot of upskilling to do in how we feel comfortable about managing pain. And I think both sides have to be improved in equal measures so that we start giving patients the confidence that what they are doing holistically in an integrated manner is the right way forward. Yes, and I actually think this goes beyond actually pain. You know, we were speaking actually to a wider problem in general um, by setting up our healthcare systems to look for organic causes and often send patients from one specialist to another to exclude said organic cause. All the while, the patient is experiencing symptoms and is not necessarily given directions on how to manage their symptoms, how to manage their experience. Um, And I am on a mission to be able to equip patients with the knowledge um, that they need to to really optimize their their health and their experience of their illness. So I know you work in an integrative way and I know that you use um, holistic approaches. Can you outline some of the approaches that you find most effective in the pain sphere? Absolutely. Uh, I think primarily what I'd like to, at the outset to your listeners, is to actually say that our present best neuroscientific understanding is that pain is a marker of protection. 
we used to think that it is a marker of detection of abnormality. We have to now think of it as a marker of protection, which means that there is a reason why the nervous and immune system together have decided that pain is necessary because it feels it needs to protect us against something. So that is the first thing I want your listeners to be aware of is that the question they need to ask themselves is what is my nervous and immune system trying to protect me against? That's a kind of opening statement which will help open out an options there. My book in itself, while I wrote it for the patient who would come to my clinic there, I think a lot of healthcare professionals have found it useful just because it kind of sets the stage for saying what are the treatments possible and how should we go about it. And the acronym, so while it's called the pain-free mindset and there's a, a group of people who push back against the title saying that, oh, you're again saying mindset, is it something that's all in the head, which is a very common thing that people talk about when it comes to pain. I do want to reassure that the mindset is, is still an acronym. Yes, there is a way of thinking about the pain. As I said, if you change your mindset from thinking pain is a sign of abnormality to saying pain is a sign of protection and ask the question, what is it trying to protect me against? That's the mindset shift I'm hoping that will happen in the minds of the patient. But the acronym itself works out in such a way that I really want to indicate that I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. While I accept that maybe not everyone needs medications and not every surgery works, which is absolutely the right thing to be. But there is a role for medications and interventions. That is the M and the I. However, there is a huge role to understanding the neuroscience of pain. That's the N. There's a huge understanding of nutrition, the microbiome. So that's the D. There is an increasing understanding that there is a very complicated and bi-directional relationship between sleep and pain. So that's the S. There's no doubt about it that physical exercise and movement is hugely important to neural circuit development and modulation. So that's the E. But it's also recognition that increasingly we are getting evidence for a lot of what we used to think as adjunctive or complementary therapies. We now know that they can have as much power and sometimes better effectiveness than even mainstream stuff. So things like yoga, mindfulness or breathing techniques or a variety of trauma supporting techniques are probably much, much better than conventional medications. So therapies of the mind and body, that's the T. So that's like the seven-step approach that I talk about in the book and I write about as to how to go about it. However, at the the foundation to it is to understand that even the biggest pain association, so for example, the International Association for Study of Pain, which is our flagship organization in the world for talking about pain, researching about pain, and uh, presenting the findings about pain, they themselves have signaled a change in 2020 to reflect the understanding of the changing neuroscience. So all of us in medical school or any healthcare school, we would have all read that there are two kinds of pain. There's the kind of pain that occurs when you have an acute injury. That's what they call as nociceptive pain. And there's the kind of injury or pain that you get 
when the nerves are actually damaged. So for example, things like diabetes or multiple sclerosis or Parkinsonism or chemotherapy induced damage to the nerves. They're all called neuropathic pain. You might have nerves cut during surgery as well. So those are all kinds of neuropathic pain, examples of neuropathic pain. And then you had nociceptive pain, which is acute injury, fracture, heart attack, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease. So these are the only two things that we were all taught about in the 80s, 90s, and even now in many and most medical schools. But we all knew in the field that there was this broad overlap between, you know, what about a migraine pain? What about a non-specific low back pain? What about fibromyalgia? All of these kind of syndromes and pains didn't really neatly fit into a, a nociceptive pain where there's often an elevation in your white blood cells or some kind of inflammatory changes or neuropathic pain where you can say, yep, there's definite nerve damage. You had none of these happening, for example, in a patient with fibromyalgia, yet you can't deny that this patient was not in pain. So all of these kind of symptoms and conditions were just lumped into a vague category called mixed pain. But now in 2020, the IASP finally said we have to recognize that conditions like migraine, some forms of CRPS, lots of nonspecific low back pain, and most cases of low back pain or neck pain are probably due to an oversensitization of the nervous system. And they have called this third category of pain, nociplastic pain. So now you've got nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain, and nociplastic pain. And in nociplastic pain, there's no signs of acute injury or inflammation. There's no signs of nerve damage like the way you have with diabetes, but there is definite amplification of the nervous system. The reason I say all this is it now automatically becomes clear, I hope, that when you do have clear signs of inflammation, like acute injury, bring out the medications. When you have neuropathic pain, go for some nerve blocks or go for some nerve medications. But when you do have this nociplastic pain, these two categories of medications and interventions and nerve blocks or surgeries will not work because the research isn't there. That is when for nociplastic pain, you have to look at the neuroscience, you have to look at the nutrition, you have to reinforce exercise, sleep optimization, physical activity, and mind-body techniques, because that's the best, most sustainable way of calming down the nervous and immune system for nociplastic pain. They also call it central sensitization. So that's how my book is oriented around saying, these are the seven steps, but this is how you want to think about bringing the seven steps together for the kind of pain that is in your patient who is sitting in front of you. Mm. That's so helpful. That's so helpful. And be, not being a pain specialist myself, I was not aware of the new class of pain that's being defined. And already I can see how that new label allows and invites a new way of thinking about dealing with a lot of people with persistent pain that yeah. um, doesn't fall into those two categories. So that's really helpful. I guess my first question is like, from the outset, it 
it, it seems tricky to tell someone or who to, to work with patients who are in pain to get better sleep, to be, to move, to, um, I guess those two are, are instantly sort of challenging to think like how, how, um, because pain keeps them up at night. You know, they can't sleep because of pain. Um, they can't move because of their pain. How do you work with patients who can find themselves in a vicious cycle? And I can just imagine, look at me with rolled eyes if I suggest to them, you know what, you need to get some better sleep when they're really struggling with with their pain, which is preventing them from, from getting the sleep that they know they may need. How do you approach that? Uh, what I do in my pain clinic as well is I use a combination of essentially a little bit of motivational interviewing techniques, so MI. So first of all, I try to judge where they are at. And this comes from, there's a particular theory called the stages of change theory, which was talked about by Prochaska and Neil. And essentially, they kind of say that all of us have some ambivalence in terms of how we want to change behavior or what activities we want to do. And when somebody is in an acute pain flare, they pretty much are in a phase where they are not ready to take up some big change. So at that point, in a secondary care setting, I try to gauge, first of all, with my initial conversations, whatever it is on where they are in the phase of change. How do they respond to some questions of mine? and whether they are ready for a slightly open way to look at what else they want to do to manage the pain, or are they very focused on getting pain relief first? If that is the case, that they want pain relief first, then I do stick with saying, okay, you know what, let's talk about medications. So my choice would be there. But what I try to do in every consultation is to seed the beginning of saying, this is a bit complex, what if the medications does not relieve all your pain? What could you do then? And that just shakes them a little bit to actually say, I just introduce a bit more ambivalence because then I don't give them the full thing, oh, this drug will take out 100% of your pain because that would be a false statement to say. But it gets them thinking, well, if it doesn't work, what can I do? And some of them will actually say, well, I could do this probably, I could do that. And that's where I introduce a little bit of saying, well, what could you do that's easy for you? Is it movement? Could you be doing about five or 10 minutes of a movement-based strategy, something that you like, Whether uh, so it's not necessarily walking or exercise. It could be something as much as a breathing technique with a little bit of a yoga or a Pilates style. I've got a few colleagues. I think I, I'm aware of a GP colleague in Wales who's got a gentle sort of YouTube channel for teaching and talking about uh, yoga techniques for back pain. There are some other popular YouTubers who do a five minute or a 10 minute gentle start for people with back pain or neck pain or arm pain. So I then have those curated resources ready to signpost just to give them a feel. So there's no pressure, there's no prescription, but it, it, I would ideally want that rapport and collaboration to say, I'm giving you a medication, but would you want to consider a movement technique? Would you want to consider maybe 
another point wherein I say about a nutrition, because again, that feels like a tangible thing to them to do rather than saying you need to sleep more. Because at that stage, patients often want help. If they are in distress and they have come to ED or they're in a clinic asking for help, it means that their personal store of resilience and coping has been impacted to a certain extent. And I am respectful of that to actually say that may not be the right time to actually say you should sleep more or you should move definitely. The should is what I avoid. I kind of say, well, what can you do to do? And what is a tangible thing to do often is a movement-based routine, a distraction-based routine, a relaxation-based routine, and a nutritional simple thing, an extra thing to add so that that feels like a tangible thing to do because then all of those are things that they feel they have done before and can do. So it's a bit of confidence and it doesn't put any added pressure on them to start something brand new in terms of a habit change. So those are my sort of techniques and tips to manage somebody who is coming with a very definite mind. And it's often a combination of motivationally doing techniques with a little bit of ambivalence judgment and nudging them to consider a couple of options. And if they are not ready, I kind of say, okay, you know what, take this medication, just look at a couple of these website and resources, see what might be possible for you to do. And let's meet up in a couple of months time or two, three months time. Meanwhile, all I'm asking you to consider is, can you do one of these two or three things, a bit of a choice, and then I pick that topic up the next time around. That's so useful to understand because it should never really be either or. I mean, there's a place for both and, and there's a place for, for medication. I think what I have a bit of a bugbear around is that yeah. medication is given, it's just given and then left and actually there's no choice offered so that people can't really make an informed choice about their health. In this situation, just to reinforce that point better, I consider that if I alone said, do this and consider these three options, it isn't enough. And that's part of what my mission is and what your mission is, is to actually get everyone to be doing this and talking not just about medications, but also seeding it. Um, there's some popular research. I don't think there ever was a paper to actually say this, uh, but I think Coke had it as part of their marketing strategy. In order to get somebody to sort of shift their viewpoint and embrace something different, on an average, it takes around seven touch points, which means that someone needs to listen to a message in probably seven different ways or seven different times before they consider change. So I accept that on that day, I might have used an MI-based technique, given a drug, and then said, look, consider A, B, and C. But I'm under no illusion to think that they would automatically take option A, B, and C if it was not going to be reinforced by somebody in primary care or one of their family members or maybe someone else they meet in the next one or two weeks. And that I realized actually is an ongoing challenge and an opportunity because that means that if we can influence everyone to actually say, these are the things you offer, 
then that means the whole system can move. That that is in a way makes the whole journey that I'm on interesting because you can't think about it. Otherwise, if I'm going to see people four or five years down the line and I just give them a drug and they come back three months later and they haven't made any change, which is what would be expected, then it just becomes an unsustainable amount of activity for me, which is a risk for burnout. And it means that the constant stream of patients would not never change because they have no place to go. Often pain clinics are considered as the kind of last resort for every other specialty when they feel they haven't been able to fix the patient. They just say, oh yeah, go to the pain clinic, they'll sort you out, uh, which is unhelpful for the pain clinic professional, but also for the patient because the patient is still left feeling with some kind of a hope of a fix when actually the whole message across the board needs to be about whether it's a gynecological problem or a neurological problem or a GI issue or a musculoskeletal issue. There are things that all our colleagues need to be talking about in a similar fashion, not their interventions and medications that they offer in those specialties, but they need to be bringing these kind of lifestyle elements. You know, I think sometimes lifestyle itself can be considered as a, a difficult word because patients take it personally. But what I mean it is in the spirit of what the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine talks about is the attention to those important elements of looking after ourselves, reducing harmful substances, doing good nutrition, all of those factors need to be something that probably all specialists to say, you know, so in, in that sense, I'm really pleased that you are at the front end of hospital practice and you're taking it up because in a way, when they meet you, that is actually a great time for change. They might be willing to consider change because they're coming in in a potentially distressed place. That's a great place where they might take up their advice much more than when they come to see me. So it's really useful to be able to talk to, to you like this, but also for you to be at the vanguard of propelling change that way. Mm, thank you. Yes, and agreed. Um, agreed. I, I do I do hold hope that um the medical students um of later years will have a will have a greater education um about these things. And you've touched on You've touched on this, uh, the, the 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 topic of nutrition, with regards to managing pain. Now, mine and your generation was never taught about nutrition in across any um, discipline, um, which is is beyond shocking, really. Um, yeah. I've never really heard about its importance in managing pain. Can you tell me what the sort of keystones of what would be considered good nutritional advice for someone um, in in pain? Absolutely. I think uh, at the outset, the big picture is a whole food, predominantly whole food. So I'm not saying it's only that. So predominantly whole food, predominantly plant-based, anti-inflammatory diet is like the big picture five or six uh, statement that I would make that has been shown to be the best bang for the buck as far as pain is concerned and nutrition is concerned. Uh, I'm also mindful that I'm not going to pick on one particular diet or one particular dietary form, although there's been 
lots of studies looking at Mediterranean diet in the context of autoimmune conditions and other conditions as well. So probably the evidence leans a little bit towards that form of diet. But I think we must be very cognizant of cultural context. We can't really, you know, the Mediterranean itself is a wide region and there is so much variation we see in how people adapt the so-called Mediterranean diet into their cultural norms, trying to offer that to our Asian population or to our uh, other ethnic minorities that live amongst us in a diverse community that we are, I think I, that is still learning that I'm having to say what is the right kind of culturally congruent cuisine that would be suitable for the patients in front of us when we want to offer for pain. Also, I'm cognizant of the fact that now nutrition is being talked about in the context of diabetes, uh, about long-term kidney disease, about obesity, about hypertension. And also from a patient perspective, we need to think most patients with pain, 50 to 70% of patients with pain also have multiple comorbidities. They also have one or at least a minimum of three other long-term conditions. So I'm mindful that I don't want to say this is the diet for pain and the diabetic specialist says this is your diet for diabetes and the kidney person says this is your diet for kidney and somebody comes around and says this is your diet for obesity because that is the recipe for a patient saying do the hell four cuisines I'm not doing anything at all I'm just going back to my pizza from one place which costs one pound fifty nine and we've lost everything so I really would say that if we can have one form of healthy diet that is being introduced for a patient, then I'd like to piggyback most of that. And most of it is likely to work for pain as well. And that's why it's the whole food, predominantly plant-based anti-inflammatory diet with very little processed food would be the big ticket statement, I'd say. Why all this around pain? Because as you rightly said, nobody has been talking about it in our times when we were training. And specifically within pain itself, nobody's still talking about it, although there are a few leaflets floating around here and there. But I'm glad to say that there is change happening. So for example, the I'm right now finishing up an article for the British Journal of Anesthesia to come in their educational uh, resource of articles, a review article on nutrition and pain. Uh, we've been invited as part of the British Pain Society to do a webinar on nutrition and pain uh, in the next few months. And then on top of it, uh, for the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, we've got a special interest group around pain and lifestyle medicine. And I've done about two, three uh, talks with the BSLM last year for nutrition and pain. And there's also a couple of websites for pain management in the UK, where I've done a few podcasts and some videos, recordings around the overlap of nutrition and pain. So I think I'd like to say that we are creating that sea well of change to say we need to focus. This is a very tangible target. Why do I say all of this and what uh, underlines the evidence? As I said, the biggest driver of central sensitization or nociplastic pain the third category that I talked about, we understand that the nervous and immune system are massively interconnected. 
if anything, every neuronal junction, so the synapse that we call in the central nervous system, every junction, so considering that there are about a billion and a billion and a half neurons in the central nervous system, and then a, another billion probably in the second brain, which is the nervous system around the gut, you have got a representative of the immune system at each and every synapse. So you got about billions of immune cells constantly modulating the signaling that's going around across these junctions. And the second brain, that is the nervous system in the gut, is constantly talking to the first brain, that's the nervous system within the skull and within the spinal cord. And they are talking all the time, possibly and most likely through the vagus nerve, but also through the other nerves as well. So which means that uh, one potential way to calm the nervous system down is to use the immune system as a target. And the biggest representation of the immune system is in and around the gut. So what you feed, what you eat, when you eat, how you eat is all going to make a difference in how the immune system reacts. And as I said, the immune system is just looking out to protect us. If you take in a lot of processed food or you're taking drugs like anti-inflammatories or proton pump inhibitors or opioids in more than excess quantity or antibiotics, you are changing the ecosystem of the gut such that the immune system in the gut, which is monitoring it, is going to say, that feels like threat. And that means the immune system is going to act up, put out its signals, its cytokines, its messengers, which is going to travel through the vagus into the central nervous system in the first brain. And there, if the system is already heightened or vulnerable or sensitized, food and the wrong food is just going to be a way that the immune system says, this is threat, this is threat, I'm just going to activation protection systems, full systems go, and people will have a flare-up of their pain, but it would be driven by actually what they ate, when they ate, what they didn't eat or eat. And that's something that even all of us have realized over time. People will tell us that with migraine, there are some things, foods that make their migraine worse or better. There are people who identify that some foods make their pelvic or abdominal pain better or worse. There are people who identify a variety of autoimmune conditions and rheumatoid arthritis. They can identify foods that make it worse. We can now put that all in perspective and say there's a very real reason why that changes because that alters the cytokines, the messengers, and the immune system in the gut, which spills over into the nervous system in the brain, amplifying or dampening the central sensitization and the nociplastic pain. So that's the reason for looking at nutrition in the context of pain. And that automatically, this explanation hopefully sort of underscores to say, as long as you can reduce your processed foods, because that is the one thing that the nervous system considers as pro-inflammatory, as long as you can eat a diverse amount of foods, which will come through a plant-based diet, but also there's going to be some forms of meat, which will definitely be healthy. And you can give some time 
for the gut to do its MOT, so intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating of some kind, which will allow for the ecosystem of the gut to sort of keep itself ticking along. If those three conditions are met, that itself is enough for a nutritionally sound approach to managing or helping with pain. I'm not saying that it's the be-all and end-all. And in my book, in fact, I do have a couple of patients and case stories where nutrition itself has made a fantastic difference to some people's pain histories. But I think it's a very easy, tangible, relatively simple target to try because they would already be doing it probably for their other long-term conditions. So it's a relatively easy and safe thing for people to slip into rather than asking them to make a massive change in there. There are some challenges. I will have to say that we need to work more at the societal and system level to say, where do they get these foods? If you're saying plant-based, how are we going to provide economically sustainable, cheap, but healthy foods to them? Where do they go and shop? Because if you're going to have a, a, a dessert, your nutritional dessert, in terms of how close their healthy foods are and unhealthy foods are. I think that is still a challenge we have to address. But in principle, that in my mind, influencing the microbiome, attempting to restore the ecosystem, reducing the processed foods is a huge anti-inflammatory recipe in itself. And even giving that sense of control and personal responsibility for someone who feels like desperate and very out of control, yeah. it is something that they can that they can at least try. That's safe. That doesn't have any side effects. Um, that they could really see some tangible and experience some tangible results that will not only affect their degree of pain but their health in the long term. So this so, is such, yeah, it's such um. It's it's so useful for for this message to be repeated um, by multiple uh, healthcare professionals. The importance of eating whole food, plant predominantly plant based, um, unprocessed, uh, diverse diverse diet, um, which um, which there's a growing number of people out there um sharing incredible recipes for yeah you know absolutely. i feel really inspired inspired by so so yeah that's that's great um so if you just to round off dr um rivendran if you were speaking to someone who's listening here um who has been struggling within the healthcare system struggling to navigate the multiple specialists they've been shunted shunted to um they're still in pain um they don't know what to do they're feeling quite hopeless could you just speak to speak speak to this sort of person um about what they could you know what their what 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 the next best step um, that they could take, um, that they may be able to try today um, to move the needle um, in one way and almost to give them maybe some hope that there there are things that can be done. There are people who care. Um, there are people that you can um, approach um, perhaps online, 
just to yeah let them know that 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 help is available to them absolutely uh so i i guess this would be an appropriate and and shameless time to plug the book uh to actually say that's part of the reason why i wrote the book so my suggestion would be at least to say explore in an open and curious mind what my book has to say about why somebody might be having their pain and what they can do in terms of having a chart so there are, there are options within the book wherein they can write out a plan of what they have tried up to now what drugs they have tried up to now what else have could they do or not do and by the end they should be able to have a set and say these are the things that i would like to do these are the things that i have not done and that itself gives them an opportunity to take that to their to their physio or to their gp or to their specialist if they are under one to actually say how can i get this or can i get this locally in there that's kind of what the purpose of the book is the for people who cannot absorb material that way reading is not their option there and then common websites that i suggest to all patients who come to see me in the clinic are one there's a website called livewellwithpain.co.uk which is a wonderful compilation done by i think a gp and lots of lived experience patients patients who have learned how to manage their pain without necessarily resorting to higher and higher drug dosages they've all got together around the pandemic time and put their collective heads together and created this resource which gives a lot of simple things that other people have tried and that might be something your listener could find useful or at least definitely even if it's a healthcare professional listening then signpost to their patients to this resource there another resource that i recommend is the flippinpain.co.uk so for people who really want to just understand their pain understand specifically the neck or musculoskeletal pain to understand why that could be happening then that is a fantastic set of lots of resources there's stuff to read there's stuff to visually look at and there are lots of webinar or podcasts that have been done to kind of pick it apart and see on there um a particular app that i tend to recommend especially for people where there is an overlap of trauma or stress that has contributed to a worsening of their pain a lot of conditions like fibromyalgia we recognize and autoimmune conditions we recognize that stress can impact on their mental health and physical health then i suggest the app called curable it is an american based app but there are there is a huge global following on there conflict of interest i am on the scientific board for that app there not much of input into the creation of it but i've done a couple of webinars with them but they are a fantastic resource in terms of the, again the kind of mind body techniques other holistic approaches to thinking about trauma stress and pain and how to manage them and what are the non drug techniques that can be effective there's a lot of fantastic recovery stories in there and i and i think lots of patients who have used that have told me how it has resonated with them and that has given them the confidence to say if i did this i can make a difference to my pain you know exactly as you said it gives some people the realization that they are not alone 
that there are others who have gone on this journey before them and made good progress. And that gives them that control, that feeling that they can do something about it. So I think these are two, three resources that I would suggest electronically for your listeners and for patients who are listening to your uh, podcast, as well as healthcare professionals to know how to signpost. And I think I'd like to think that in these days, in the last four or five years, every place has got social prescribers and care coordinators and GPs in most practices who are more enlightened than they have ever been with these lifestyle medicine approaches. So I suspect that if the patient did their first bit at least and said, I'd like help with this, what's available in my GP practice, sorry, in my GP practice or in the primary care network, I think they themselves might have a set of resources that they can signpost people to and that itself would be a good start. Mm, that's great. I will get those resources down um, from you and um, they will be accessible in the show notes for anyone that does want to have a look at those websites um, and consider using the app. I'll put a link to all of that and Dr. Ravindran's book um, in the show notes so that you can explore some of the evidence and the options that you may wish to try alongside or instead of medication and whatever is right for you and right for the stage of your illness. Thank you so much for your expertise, for your hard work, for, um, I guess, really, I notice how you are almost like translating the more esoteric uh, evidence and bringing it really into the mainstream writing journal articles, writing review articles, getting it known within the medical community, which is just so important. So thank you so much for your hard work and efforts in this area. Thank you, Jude. Thank you for having me on your podcast and wish you the very best of luck and to your listeners as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, Body, Mind, Soul Seekers. If you want to connect with trusted alternative therapists, learn more about what they do, and how they can help you, check out my new holistic healthcare platform, The Witchy Women. Or if you are a holistic healer that wants to serve and help more people, book in a discovery call with me. Find more details at thewitchywomen.com. To show your support for this podcast, please share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Thank you all so much. Until next time.